presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute and your host today. Thank you for joining us. One of my guests today is Tamara Ryan, CSI's first ever Coors Economic Mobility Fellow. Through this fellowship, Tamara is exploring topics around economic independence, self-sufficiency, and exploring ways we can incentivize our work here in Colorado. Tamara has now released three reports with CSI focusing on these topics, with her most recent report released just last month, which focuses on women and the workforce. In addition to this, Tamara has released a fascinating report on Colorado's labor shortage and the skills mismatch between what employers want and what our young people are pursuing. Astoundingly, these two issues are costing Colorado an estimated $46 billion each year. I'm excited to have her here today. Tamara, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Earl. It's great to be here again. Also, we have Scott LeBand, president of Colorado Succeeds. Colorado Succeeds was founded in 2006 as a nonpartisan business advocacy organization which focuses on education and workforce development here in Colorado. Scott has been with Colorado Succeeds since 2010, is a passionate about creating relevant and valuable education experiences for young people through policy, practice, and philanthropy. Scott is an expert in education policy, education trends here in Colorado. Scott, it's terrific to have you with us too. Thanks, I appreciate the opportunity. Both of you joining us today, I feel very privileged to have such experts in this topic with us. And thank you for all that you've done in the community. Both of you have just been outstanding in your your support and the results you've gotten in the community. But let's uh, delve into this wealth of experience that you have. Tamara, I'd like to start with you. You estimate Colorado's GDP lost $46 billion in labor shortage and skills mismatches that Tamara, that's a lot more than our state budget on an annual basis. That's what's in your report. Colorado's workforce woes should spill opportunity for economic mobility, is the report. Can you break down what exactly is causing such a big or large price gap? I'd love to, because I was surprised by that number also. When we were doing this report was over the summer of 2023, and uh, what we saw was that there were 243,000 open positions in Colorado with only about a little over 89,000 people who were technically unemployed, so who were actively seeking employment. So about 2.7 jobs for every person looking for employment. So we plugged that into the Remy modeling that CSI has and is becoming known for. And what that helped us do was look at both the productivity cost of having so many open jobs, as well as the uh, the cost of wages not going back into the economy. Because of course, when people earn money, then they're spending money in their communities and that money is being recycled back into the economy. And so the Remy modeling helped us uh, determine this $46 billion cost to Colorado this year. What I was hoping is that would get people's attention because it's really not just about having a low unemployment rate because I think we have a tendency to, you know, pat ourselves on the back when the unemployment rate is low, but it really, uh, the unemployment rate really does not give a clear picture of what's actually happening in the state. Is this something that's been uh, just current or has it been going on for some time? 
Well, we've had low unemployment rates in the past, pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, I can recall working to hire people, you know, in the maybe 2018 or so, and you know, unemployment in Denver metro area was 2.6 percent or something crazy like that. And again, I think that we focus on the fact that this unemployment rate is so low and that there are lots of jobs, two jobs for every person or 2.7 jobs for every person. And what we have a tendency to overlook is the people who are out of the workforce for a variety of reasons. And that also, I don't think, is a new phenomenon. I want to explore a little bit that gap you're talking about. What are the jobs that aren't being fulfilled or that aren't being filled? What's the openings that you just can't find enough people for? Do you have any idea what those are? Well, a lot of them are the jobs that require an education that's more than high school and less than college degrees. And so there, in fact, in our state right now, about 45% of jobs require that you know, middle level skill. And only about 35% of our state has that level of, of skill. So I think it's also a reflection of a skills mismatch where we're not preparing people through our education system and our training systems to be prepared for the jobs that we actually have. So some of it is that. Some of it is also that people have left the workforce because they're discouraged. We have a lot of people who were formerly incarcerated in our in our state across our country. About a third of working age adults have some sort of criminal background. Um, and people who are formerly incarcerated have a 27% unemployment rate. People with who are on the autism spectrum have an 85% unemployment rate. And so it is, it, it's a combination of we haven't prepared people for the jobs that we actually have. And we also have not helped the people who have the ability to work move into employment. I, I, I hear you on that. And I'm not trying to challenge you, those people. It's just the numbers. You say there's 153,000 openings, right? Did I hear that right? It was 243,000. I'm sorry, 243. The Delta, okay, whatever, 243. They can't all be made up with people that are ex-cons. And, and then the Delta can't all be made up with those. And it can't be, all be made up with, you know, people that are, are disabled. It's just a basic labor shortage, isn't it, uh, Tamara? And we have ways in which we can lessen that labor shortage, but just basically labor shortage, isn't it? It, it is a labor shortage, but I don't think we're getting the full picture. So I think if we put energy into helping people who are entirely out of the labor force, and that is a trend for men, and I think some, that's something my fourth quarter report will look at. If we look at people who are out of the labor force who wish to be in the labor force, it would go a long way toward filling that gap. And it's not to say that we, that would entirely fill the gap, but then we'd have a clearer picture of what we're really lacking. Another challenge we're having in this state, though, Earl, is that historically we have brought in well-educated people. We've had a really strong in-migration into our state. And so this, uh, these open positions are also happening at a time where our in-migration into Colorado has dropped. And the state demographer has told us that it is expected to continue to decline until 2050. So as a state, again, we've historically brought well-educated people into our state to take employment and to potentially raise their families. And that trend is, at least for the foreseeable future, not continuing. What's interesting, and I know Scott can speak to this probably much more eloquently, um, but what's interesting is uh, we are the most educated state in the country, and yet 
our students go to college at a rate that's 10% less than the national average. What this report is really trying to point out is, yes, we have a labor shortage. We're also not preparing people for the jobs and we're not bringing new people in. And so in order to really begin to get a true picture of what this looks like, we've got to enlist the people who are already here. Well, let me, before I go to Scott, let me ask one more question because this will be something I'm going to push with Scott too, but I'd like your opinion on the possible solutions or first steps legislators or business leaders should take to uh, close this skills gap? What are your thoughts? Well, I think that there are are some efforts being made that I would love to see continue. Uh, And that is that workforce development and our education system need to work together. Our places like community colleges need to be training people for both high demand jobs currently and also high demand jobs for the future. One of the significant changes that Colorado has just made and uh, went into effect on July 1st, 2023, is that we brought all of our apprenticeship programs under the state to be managed. Prior to that, it was managed on a federal level. And so those apprenticeship programs, there are over 500 apprenticeship programs now managed by the state apprenticeship office with about 100 a year over the next several years expected to be added. So I think that it is putting our energy into where we can train people for the the jobs of both today and more importantly of the future. Scott, I'm going to uh, turn to you, but I, I'm a little bit suspect, okay, uh, about this mismatch. Uh, and where, my, uh, where I get suspect is I know very few teenagers that really know what they want to do when they grow up, quote unquote. And, and oftentimes it changes several times. So uh, one of the things I I'm, I puzzle over, Scott, and uh, is whatever happened to the idea that we would uh, sit these young people down and do some interest and aptitude testing and then have a chance to talk to them about what is your interest and aptitude and how does that match up with careers that are out there? You know, let them have a chance to pursue what would be a course to have a higher likelihood of success for them. And why aren't the business leaders getting engaged as this? Or why aren't the schools getting, or what, what am I missing here on this mismatch, mismatch or am I misunderstanding it? Um, I don't think you're misunderstanding it. And I think Tamara did a really nice job of explaining the, the challenge and the opportunity. Certainly the need to focus on homegrown talent is, is critical and not think that we can import our way out of this challenge. To your point about, you know, the discovery process, I've had an opportunity to visit a couple of schools in Cajon Valley in uh, Southern California, and they have this entire initiative called the World of Work. And what they do is they help young people starting in kindergarten understand their strengths, interests, and values. And so they start to really analyze what is it that they care about, who are they as a person, and what is it that they want to, what is the problem in the world that they want to solve? I'm sorry, but uh, I, I have to do this to you. And it doesn't mean that we're, we're going to get into an argument, but there's a guy named Robert Sapolsky who has written about the cognitive development of the human being. And based upon what he knows about kindergartners and kids in grade school, they're still basically animal instincts with regards to their cognitive capabilities. So how how can you identify, now maybe you can figure out your physical strengths, but as far as cognitive capabilities, I'm not real certain how that works in, in elementary school, but 
I can see it, you know, eventually as they get older, but go ahead. I, yeah, uh, I mean, respond to my, my suspicion of being able to do that in kindergarten, but go ahead. You know, I appreciate the suspicion. I have uh, young people in, of element, in elementary school of my own. And so I understand some of those animal instincts and I've seen them around my house. But, um, I, you know, I would say you got to start at some point and it's never too early to start. You can't be what you can't see. And so many kids have a narrow aperture because of, of the circumstance in which they live, that it's incumbent upon all of us to help young people see as many different pathways, as many different professions. And we wanna start that as young as possible. And so elementary is a place to do it, uh, middle school certainly. But what Tamara really talked about is this need to realign the pathways that are available to young people in schools and colleges. And what we really believe is that the business community has to take a role in that process. And so where we've seen the most success is when you get the business community, K-12 education, and post-secondary education to step out of their silos and to step into collaborative partnerships with each other, where business takes the lead and actually says and defines, here are the specific skills that I need today, and this is, these are the skills that I project that I will need into the future. How can we make sure that the young people are learning those skills as they move through their educational career? And what they do is they sit down and they actually build plans and they come up with specific goals that say, these are the kinds of things that we're going to uh, strive to achieve. Here's how we're going to do it. And then they actually co-create new learning experiences that give young people those skills. Things like career exposure, career mentorship, internships, apprenticeships, all those kinds of things that help young people, again, open up their worldview, meet adults, uh, gain some social capital and gain an understanding of where are their skills and interests. And sometimes the best opportunities are when they do an internship and find out that's not what they want so that they don't go on and then waste a lot of time and money later on pursuing something that isn't uh, ultimately aligned with what their best fit is. And so trying to get to that information early is where we're really trying to, to push. Okay, let, let's pursue that for a second. So you're trying to get that information early. So uh, let's assume I'm a business leader you've talked to, and let's assume that uh, I say that I need individuals with strong quantitative skills, computer skills, and then we have other people in the construction industry say, hey, we need people that have good engineering skills and or uh, maybe uh, trade skills. Uh, so how do you take these business leaders and what they're saying and give us a sense of how you coordinate that with the schools and uh, how we're going to get a better outcome? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so they'll actually sit down and they'll then um, create a plan that says, if these are the specific skills that we're looking for, these are the experiences that we think help build those skills. And those experiences- Who's that, who's that with? Who's that with? Are you talking it's about- It's actually that? with the employers sitting down with uh, uh, high school principals, middle school principals, teachers, and in some cases, superintendents. We've even seen um, local county and municipal government leaders come to the table for reasons of saying, we wanna see greater civic engagement in the community. And so they will come together and they'll build what they call a new profile of a graduate. Where's that being done, Scott? Give us We're a seeing it in, yeah. So, so we've worked with eight communities through the Homegrown Talent Initiative. It's recently just expanded to 60 communities. They're primarily rural. A couple of great examples would be like Canyon City. A couple of another example would be Holyoke, uh, Grand County, Durango, Montezuma Cortez. Um, the rural, the rural areas so far. 
So far, we've seen the most uptake for this in rural areas. I think they have a greater sense of urgency uh, in some respects. Um, there's also a little bit more willingness to take risks in some of these areas. Okay. Probably the biggest difficulty in graduating students in our public high schools in the Denver public school system. There may be others, but that's the largest in the state. And I know we have a, that's a significant source of uh, employers and, and uh, staff for the future. Are you getting any kind of uh, traction there? We've not yet worked in Denver Public Schools specifically. We know that there's other groups that are. Um, and so I think that that is one that is uh, definitely in need. And, you know, they have a DPS foundation that I think is reaching out directly to the business community to try and set some of those things up. But ultimately, what we're trying to get to is a place of creating relevance for young people, having them, having, giving them opportunities to learn not just the theory, but also give them hands-on application. And what this does is it helps them answer that age-old question of why am I learning this material and why will this ever matter to me in my life? And once you can do that, we actually find that young people's um, attendance goes up, their grades go up, their uh, graduation rates, and their post-secondary matriculation goes up. And, and it's not all pushing kids into four-year college. Uh, to Tamara's earlier point, a lot of these great opportunities are middle skill opportunities that require something beyond high school, but not necessarily a four-year degree. So you're trying to make the education relevant to the young person other than just theory, or they think that there may not be any use for learning this. Is that a fair state, statement? Absolutely. I guess the, the concern I have with that, I'd still like to have them learn a little bit about the Civil War, and I'm not real certain how they're going to take that and personalize it. But yeah, we'll we'll let the you know, let you have that conversation with the instructors and figure out how we can make that work. Okay. Well, and I agree with you. We do still need to learn history, and uh, and we do still need to learn uh, literacy and numeracy and all the the fun fundamental foundational skills. But I also think we can do it in ways that. Um, help young people see the utility, the usefulness, and the connection to their life. Um, and so that's that just takes a lot of creativity and a lot of time and, and partnerships. And that's where business can really play a role. Hey, great. Thanks for your candor. I'd like to ask both of you a broader question regarding the barriers people are facing to either joining Colorado's workforce, and Tamara, you alluded to that a few minutes ago, or remaining in the workforce consistently Tamara, I know your most recent paper looked at this exact issue for women. So perhaps you could speak specifically about that group. Well, Scott, you could speak more broadly about our population in general. Tamara, why don't you take a shot at it? Well, sure. So I guess the headline I'd like to share is that the she session that was caused by the pandemic is over. Uh, women have returned to the workforce and uh, amazingly are in the workforce at a higher rate than ever before. So that's the great news is that women really are contributing substantially to our economic recovery. Behind every headline, I think there are some things how, that, how's that. How's that changed? I, I can't how, imagine ever a time in which women either weren't the success for the entire family one way or another, or they're engaged in the in the workforce service. So what's changed? Well, it's that they're at a much higher rate. And also the she session, that was a term that was coined during the pandemic when women were at the time 47% of the workforce and they lost 54% of the jobs. And so they were really, and it, because of the kinds of industries they, that they were in and the industries that were affected so 
largely by the pandemic, there was an alignment. And so women lost their jobs at a much higher rate. That's why it's good news that they're that they're coming back into the labor force at such high rates. Wait, 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 wait. There's a reason they lost their, you said in your report, I don't want you to skirt over this because it's something your report said. I want you to get credit for it. How come they lose lost it? And how come they're coming back at a faster rate now? Well, I think they they lost so many women lost jobs because they uh, they were in sectors that were hugely affected by the pandemic. They yeah, were right. in they were, as you said, they were in the service sector, Tamara. Yeah, and boy, that just absolutely got annihilated, and that's seventy percent of our economy. So, yeah. boy, your 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 report was spot on. I mean, I just. And I thank you for pointing that out because I don't know if people really understood that and the impact. So go ahead, please. Well, and then also you add to the fact, and this is where the problems continue, that even though women have returned to the labor force, they haven't necessarily returned to the exact same jobs. They may be returned to other jobs. But during that the pandemic, we were also losing women from the workforce because they were taking on so much additional stuff at home. So, you know, kids were home and there was homeschooling. And in fact, the report that CSI did in 2021 reported that women on average took on an additional three hours a day of work at home, which equates to a part-time job. And so what we were seeing as a result of that as and what was happening in the education system and what was happening in childcare is then subsequently women were also leaving the labor force during the pandemic because it was just kind of too much to handle. So the fact that we've kind of overcome that and women are at the highest rate of labor force participation ever right now, I think is phenomenal. And this is what we also talked about in the report. The challenges that existed before the pandemic exist today and in some ways are are even more challenging. So childcare is a really big one. And we can save this part of the conversation for later, or I can continue now, uh, Earl, but childcare, 51% of the state is in a childcare desert, meaning that there aren't enough spots for the number of kids who need childcare. People are spending, two thirds of households are spending 27% or more of their household income on childcare today. Many, many people who were in the child care, who were providers of child care, who worked in the sector have left the sector. So child care is actually pretty much a hot mess and really needs to be addressed. You've opened so many things that I'd love to talk and question you about. And Scott, I don't want to ignore you, but I cannot let her go without some questions on this. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that uh, in the child care arena, didn't you say that a lot of the women don't haven't gone back to the same job they had before? So maybe you had some of the people that were in childcare ended up going to other jobs and uh, left openings in the childcare uh, industry. But, but am I just being too simple? It's only half of it. Yes, people left childcare to go to other better-paying jobs. But the problem is new people haven't come into those childcare jobs okay. because they they require credentialing and they don't pay well. And a lot of times the centers are struggling to survive. 16,000 childcare centers across the U.S. closed permanently as a result of the pandemic. So like any problem, there are lots of factors, but childcare centers are really struggling to, many of them are really struggling to stay in business. Now tell me, you say it requires certification. Who, who requires certification? In order to work in a child care center, you have to have qualifications to provide that care. Who's forcing that? Who's saying you have oh. to 
because those are state requirements. Those are state oh. requirements. Yeah. So, so maybe, it's regulatory. Maybe, maybe state regulations are maybe causing a little bit of a shortage, or am I just once uh, again trying to make it too simple? I think that if you were to ask childcare centers, they would say that the state regulations really impact their ability to operate inexpensively and how many how much money they put toward meeting the requirements of those regulations that doesn't go toward paying staff and taking care of the kids is ridiculous so i think that that's part of the problem another part of the problem is that many people who need childcare get ch the colorado child care assistance program dollars what we find is that someone can be awarded the the ccap money and then not be able to find a spot in childcare centers because those centers don't want to mess with the administrative requirements of trying to get those reimbursements and the reimbursements are lower than their costs. So they actually can't afford to take those dollars. So again, at kind of at every level, we make it really hard for childcare centers to operate. And I think what gets lost in that is, is that the individuals being served in those childcare centers are the future of our communities. And it would behoove us all to be invested in trying to make those experiences the best they can possibly be. And yet we really, through regulation and through low reimbursement and all the things that the childcare centers end up having to deal with, we make it just nearly impossible to operate in a way that's sustainable in the long term. Well, I'm just going to leave one thought for you without, and if you want to respond, you may, but this reimbursement reminds me a little bit about Pell Grants in college. You know, Pell Grants were intended to help everybody have a chance to have the money to get education. And somehow, just somehow, college tuition kept going up and kept getting more expensive and more loans were made. But I'm not going to, I'm going to take the final statement there, Tamara, and go to Scott. Scott, how do you see the, the broader issue with regards to the population, uh, the broader population issue on, on barriers that's going on? Yeah, when, when we talk to employers, reliable child care absolutely comes up as one of the top issues. We also hear about affordable housing being a major challenge and people having to live further away from where they work, which also then brings up the need for reliable transportation and whether or not that's uh, an availability to the, to the job seeker. And so those continue to be some of the top ones we hear. Then I would also say there's a, there's a small percentage of folks that are saying no to certain jobs because they have certain expectations of what a job would include. Um, in terms of wages and benefits and uh, schedules and, and, you know, things like that. So there are some expectations around what jobs provide people and, and what they want to be able to, uh, to take advantage of. You know, one of the things, uh, Scott, that I, as I was preparing for this, I noticed that there is uh, the 35 to 44 age group of women that you've had when they were there. That, that, that I think Tamara kind of responded to in her report or addressed it where you have kind of a back off of uh, of the uh, labor force participation rate amongst that group, and what about businesses uh, with that age group? They you know they want to be there. Often there's women that that or men, but more often women that want to be there for the kids. Uh, you know, and but yet from nine to three, there's a window that uh, they can possibly. Uh, have a flexible job or part-time job. What's happening? Is that something that we're missing an opportunity on, or or is that just, you know, me looking at data and trying to come up with an answer? Help me out. I think that's an interesting idea. I mean, certainly when you think about the years that people are raising their children, those are oftentimes the years that people require the greatest amount of flexibility. 
And yet we know that kids are in a school, like you said, from that nine to three window. And so creating more opportunities for people to do hybrid or um, part-time work during those hours certainly makes a lot of sense. I think there's also certain people out there who have recommended changing the school day to better match the workday. And so extending the length of the school day um, to, to create more time for uh, for people to be productive and work and, and find those earnings. Uh, there's probably a, a solution somewhere in between. What kind of conversations you're having with business leaders about that or the community, or is it just an idea that has been thrown out but not had much of a, a vetting? Yeah, it's more the latter. It's not seen a whole lot of uh, traction at this point in time. I think more young, more employers are having conversations around um, childcare and trying to find ways to provide or support their employees in accessing childcare. And then you have also have things like, are we getting childcare or are we getting people into early childhood education programs? And that's another opportunity that the business community is talking a lot about is making sure that you know, there's there's education happening in these experiences. And we're talking about, you know, high quality preschool as we prepare people for their uh, their elementary school experience. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you and Tamara brought up the preschool and you mentioned Cajon and, and et cetera. But I want to I want to uh, kind of explore that issue for a second. The preschool, I think we all are are really engaged in the idea of letting these kids have a the same uh, capabilities going into kindergarten and first grade and not having somebody have an advantage over somebody else because maybe their home experience or what the parents can or cannot afford. We're all, I think we're all in the game together because we want everybody to have a chance to, to thrive educationally. I can't help but bring up, uh, and I'd like both of your comments on this, where we fit in on the issue that Canada brought up. They mentioned that once the kids get into the second, third grade, the kids that have been into their special preschool programs there don't necessarily continue to to have the advantage that the preschool program started for them. What do we need to do so that the kids that we want to have, now the families, you know, the kids, some parents, you know, they've got a situation set up where there's obviously a strong support system and they keep that advantage. What, what do we need to do to, for the kids that are in the environment? And if you can identify the environment that can't keep that advantage so they can have a chance to to thrive. I'll take a first crack at it. And then Tamara's definitely want to hear your thoughts. Quite sadly, if you look at the data across the system as a whole, the longer young people are in school, the worse they do um, in terms of their proficiency rates. And that's across the board. And so what we're really trying to figure out is how do you make sure kids don't start behind because we know that the issue is is right. more acute when you start behind you stay behind most likely and so yeah, trying to get that readiness to that point at kindergarten is just so essential so that there's not those major gaps in word recognition that is really the foundation for early literacy and as you pointed out you know between kindergarten and third grade you learn to read after that you read to learn and so if you're not getting those early literacy skills in those early ages you're kind of setting yourself up for long term challenges and struggles but but Tamara what would you add here well i would say you know the the question of questioning what the the validity of preschool because kids catch up with one another is maybe not the right question that instead well, I'm not, for I'm not, I'm not, no 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 i'm not questioning the validity of preschool that's not my question the preschool has proven it works, but the question is, can it sustain the advantage for those kids that that you're trying to benefit? That's the question. And the well, I, studies suggested there is issues. 
Yeah. And and what I would say is that then the responsibility, as Scott was saying, lies with the education in those first few years and emphasis on being at grade level and reading by third grade. I work with lots of women at Women's Bean Project who come to us in their 40s who have a third or fourth grade reading level. And what's challenging about that is at 40 years old, the system let her down a long time before she became an, an adult. And so I think the focus on that, those first early years of making sure that you keep those kids engaged and you build their literacy skills, as Scott said, learning to read so that they can read to learn later is really where our, I think more energy needs to be spent. Thanks. I appreciate kind of going off script and answering the question and participating in the uh, conversation. Let's go back on script and the universal uh, preschool here in Colorado. It's got a lot of uh, very positive publicity and I think the outcomes are are yet to be seen. I hope they're going to be as positive as we think they could be. Can you give us a a little bit more information about the background of uh, what this program uh, provides, Scott, and how your organization has been involved in helping it get set up? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So Universal Pre-K was rolled out in the state earlier this fall. Uh, There's about 30,000 young people who are taking advantage of it. Uh, The program provides 10 to 15 hours of free preschool to all four-year-olds. But if you are uh, low income and have a second risk factor, like being an English language learner or having special needs, there is the opportunity to receive full day preschool. We at Carter Succeeds were one of the organizations that uh, supported Proposition EE a couple of years ago, which uh, was the creation of the Universal Pre-K program. And um, as we worked on that, one of the major things that was important to us was the principle of choice. And that if these uh, families were going to be provided the opportunity to access pre-K, they had the opportunity to choose the provider that worked best for them. And we're happy to see that that continues to be a part of the program today. Will this be able to expand? It will. Um, It's actually, um, interestingly, it's funded by a tobacco and nicotine tax. And so as the demand for those products increase, the funding for universal pre-K will increase. Um, Additionally, it's on the ballot in this November through Proposition II, which um, basically says that uh, the money and the revenue that's been received um, from the tobacco and nicotine tax would stay with um, with the state as opposed to being refunded to the, the retailers. And that's about $23 million if uh, Proposition II passes, which would help okay. it continue to grow and expand. Good. Anything to do to help education, I think we're all better off, and particularly to get the results we're talking about. Thank you, Scott. I want to thank both of you for your time here today. I hope that the policymakers, business leaders, and the community will take the time to really consider the value of our research and Tamara, thank you so much for the most recent report and the continual reporting that you'll be doing on the topic. And uh, thank you, Scott, for the work done by Colorado Succeeds. You know, you're giving us some answers. Now all we have to do is get together and figure out how to implement. It's like anything. Good ideas don't have, doesn't much, uh, you know, not much happens unless you can execute it. You're certainly in the forefront of helping us do that. To learn more about CSI research, please go to www.commonsenseinstitute.org and visit coloradosucceeds.org to see the tremendous work that Scott and his group are doing and have done as an organization. Finally, Tamara, Scott, I appreciate your tolerance to my questions, me interrupting you and your candor and answering the questions 
Are there any final words you'd like to leave with your listeners today? And I will not interrupt you. Yeah, I think when we focus on the data and a lot of the reports, for instance, that I'm doing and the other fellows at CSI are doing, it can be easy to maybe get mired in pessimism. But I remain optimistic. I think that a lot of the stuff uh, Scott was talking about today and some of the things that work that I'm seeing happening in the state where there is cross-collaboration and where we're treating our issues as systems issues rather than siloed issues it really gives me optimism because it really is going to take all of us working together to address the challenges that our state faces. And, and so I feel optimistic about how we are maybe not across the board, but we're starting to work together to address our most pressing issues. And I would just pick up on that thread to say, you know, we've just launched something called the Education to Employment Alliance, which is a coalition of business organizations like Chambers of Commerce and businesses from all across the state, currently representing about 2,000 businesses who are all focused on implementing some of these ideas that we just talked about today. And so for anybody who wants to learn more, or get engaged in that, uh, there's information on our website, coloredasucceeds.org. And just want to say thanks again for this opportunity. I just have so much respect for both of you, Tamara and Earl, and uh, what a pleasure it's been to be in conversation with you today. So thanks so much. Well, both of you in the trenches are making a difference, and it's a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on Podcatchers Everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.